Welcome to Game Study Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic discipline of game studies, or at least the parts of it that we've read. I'm Cameron Kunzelman. And I'm Michael Lutz. Wow! This is episode two of the uh, of our podcast. Yes, it is. Huh. I know. We have come so far. Yeah, we especially because we recorded that first episode. <laughs> like uh, you were saying before, that the the last time we recorded, I asked you if you had seen the film Annihilation yet. Um, <laughs> yeah. So perhaps it was a little while ago. It took me a minute to get it all uh, ready to go, but I think it's good. Um, and we had a really great response to that first episode. You know, it was it was incredible. Um, I was very, I mean, not to self-deprecate, right? But I was very surprised that people were, were responding so positively to just like two guys talking about a book they read. Mm-hmm. Oh, we should just talk about every book we read. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the money is. I mean, uh, eventually you're going to have to, I don't know if you're still doing the thing where you're reading all those Dragonlance novels, but <laughs> we'll start a Dragonlance novel podcast. Oh, you don't want to float that. You know that no, people are going to... No. As soon as you say oh, that, God. people are like, oh, we got to get that. We got <laughs> to hear it that. Patreon tier. I know. Oh, yeah, we need you. Uh, we'll talk about <laughs> we'll talk about Patreon uh, toward the end of this thing. We're in the middle. I think we're going to do a, uh, uh, a McElroy Brothers uh, drop in the middle of the episode. Ooh, nice. Know, uh, that kind of thing. So... Learn uh, from the greats. Yeah, it's your, it's your funniest little baby brother, me. <laughs> or whatever they say. I'm, I'm Clint. I'm their dad. <laughs> yeah, this is our uh, this is our podcast where we role play uh, the McElroys <laughs> reading game studies books, and I play Griffin, and you play Clint. Uh, Very all right. Very oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. So we're we're reading game studies books. Uh, go back and listen to that first episode if you haven't already. We do kind of like a longer intro to it, but the general idea is we're kind of informally reading books in pairs. Um, and so last episode we read Jesper Yule's uh, Half Real, which is kind of like a maybe not meta book of game studies, but certainly a book that has like very high inspirations of creating a big you know tap, capital T theory. Of mm-hmm. games. Um, and so this time we're reading Shira Chess's book, uh, Ready Player Two, which is, is not necessarily a big capital T theory of games. Right. It's very much um, the thing about Yule also is that, uh, you know, he's coming at a time when academic game studies is really trying to establish itself. Um, and uh, in many ways, I think Chess's book, uh, you know, can benefit from the fact that she doesn't have to fight that battle and be like, here is here is why games are worth studying mm-hmm. to begin with. Um, so uh, she can then focus on smaller things and she actually gets into, uh, you know, sort of the, I guess, not really justifying the existence of certain types of games, but uh, talking about the games that often aren't talked about when we talk about game studies, I guess. The video games, I should say, that we don't talk about when we talk about game studies. Um, specifically, uh, games that are, how would you how would you say sh- we would, like, phrase this? Like, marketed towards women? E- well, yeah, I mean, I think we'll, yeah. <clears throat> when we talk about the first chapter, I think we're going to kind of yeah. have to play with the language a little bit, because I think, I think the book is a little fast and loose sometimes mm-hmm. with how this is done. But yeah, I think broadly you know, in quotation marks, games for women. Yes, like games as for women. Games yes. for women, right, is, is kind of the the uh, 
what the book is about and she complicates that a lot and kind of does this kind of stuff but um but yeah that's so instead of like all of games it's a very specific subset of games that are designed for a very specific populace and kind of coming out of although not really citing a whole lot of like the cultural studies tradition very much i think within that flavor of, yes very of, much so of uh, reading and like very close attention to the economic conditions uh, mm-hmm. and uh, the design ideals that that exist. I don't even know if we've said the name of the book yet. The name of the book is Ready Have Player we... Two. Yes, Ready Player Two. Uh, there's a subtitle: Women, Gamers, and Designed Identity. I actually, yeah, I think I jumped the gun. We didn't even say the title. Yeah, I, I let you do it. Yeah, so I've, I've prepared yeah. a little thing here at the top before we yeah. get right into it. Because uh, if you listen to the first episode, you know. But if you haven't already, we kind of. Uh, give a little spiel at the top, and then we're just going to go chapter by chapter, uh, talking about the book and how we felt about it, and kind of uh, rehearsing the argument for you, uh, and then you know just discussing it. So, yeah. uh, so it's from the University of Minnesota Press, uh, and it came out in 2017. Uh, Minnesota is, has historically not necessarily been like a big game studies uh, press, right? They're not mm-hmm. MIT. Um, but they have done some like really big books. So they did Games of Empire, um, mm-hmm. a, kind of a very popular book about kind of Hart and Negri um, and critique of capitalism and, uh, and and video games. They did Patrick Krogan's Gameplay Mode, which I think we will absolutely do on this show at some <laughs> point. Uh, that's one of my favorite books of game studies. Uh, they've Ooh, done Egan, nice. one or two Ian Bogost books. Um, and then the Queer Game Studies Reader uh, over the past couple years. I think they did Adrian Shaw's book as well, Gaming at the Edge. Mm. I think that's Minnesota. Yeah. Um, so so uh, some some very big splash books uh, have come uh, come out of there. Um, and I think this is, this is a big splash book in the sense of I think that it is uh, methodologically important. I think it's a cool book. I think it's doing stuff that other game studies books don't do. Uh, although I have been kind of sad to not see it get as much traction as i think it deserves um which is why which is why i was like michael we have to read this book we have to <laughs> we gotta talk about this book because uh, because I, I like it quite a bit all right i mean i was totally on board because i think one of the first I, you didn't tell this to me but you were like tweeting about it um possibly or maybe you posted on facebook you you mentioned how she used latour um bruno latour who i guess we'll talk about eventually uh but i'm i'm a big latour dude so that was when i was like oh okay i definitely want to read this then because i want to see how that gets brought into this particular argument yes yeah i think it's a an interesting lever uh, i think there are some cool theory things that show up in this in a book that mm-hmm. that is uh, is interesting in passing through theory to do other things, but I think there are some right, right. good implications for how theory works uh, in the book. Um, just a little biographical information. Uh, so Shira Chess is an assistant professor at the University of Georgia. Um, has uh, her PhD from, I can never ever say this correctly, yeah. but Rennesler? Is it Rennesler? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I would say like Rennesler. Rennesler Te- Polytechnic Institute. Rennesler. But yeah, got her PhD out of there, um, and this is actually her second book. She co-wrote a book uh, called Folklore. Uh, for, <laughs> it's been a it's been a very long day already. Folklore, horror mm-hmm. stories, and the Slender Man, um, which is about, yeah. of course, Slender Man. Right, and that's from yeah, that's a Palgrave book mm-hmm. from, from like, twenty fifteen. And 
do you think we should is there any more setup we should probably do or do you just want to kind of like jump in i think we should just jump in um so so the book has got uh, it 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 has five body chapters it has an Mm -hmm. introduction and a conclusion of course and it also has a preface and i think we can talk really briefly about the preface um because i do think it actually sets up a lot of the stakes of the rest of the book despite being you know not the introduction to the despite being the preface yeah and it's like everything everything about the two of us as readers is illustrated by the fact that you took notes on the preface and I didn't. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, okay. And you're like, oh, this is actually fundamental to what's happening. Yeah, well, if this were a translator's introduction, I would never have read it. But if it's a preface, <laughs> I'll, I'll go for that. Um, but but yeah, did you read it? Did you read the preface? I did, I did read okay. it. I just, uh, I hadn't made any notes. And I, I mean, the preface is, it is interesting, right? It, it Because it's a, a kind of uh, autobiographical reflection on the circumstances of the composition of the book. And kind of, this was a, uh, this started as a, as a dissertation, I think, right? This, this is where she says that. Um, yeah, yeah. So part of the stuff, yeah. the chapter, uh, the, there's a chapter that deals kind of heavily with Nintendo DS-y kind of stuff uh, in mobile mm-hmm. games, and I think that was a chunk of her dissertation. I, I kind of wish now that I'd gone and looked it up to to see what the big differences are, but I think that yeah, body of of the or, or a, a portion of like the background of this book um, mm-hmm. is is in that dissertation. But yeah, she she kind of says in the preface that. There are kind of two pivot points that set up the book and, and, and the, the writing of the book. And one is that she started this project in general, meaning like her dissertation project, as a single woman uh, years ago. And now she has uh, one child, I believe, or maybe two children. Um, mm-hmm. uh, she's married. Uh, her gaming habits changed completely. Um, and, and she says, I even wrote this quotation down, but she says that the kind of trajectory change from the beginning of the project to now is that uh it's so this is a quote it is not just that i see these games differently but that all of a sudden these games were made for me meaning that the kind of intended audience for these games she her life condition has molded her into the kind of ideal subject position for these games the ideal market um that is that is that is really really great that's a really interesting moment of insight well, I, so and this shows up in the conclusion as well, and I think we'll talk right. about it in the conclusion. But I think that actually presents some weird problems for the theory that, <laughs> that is in this book, and I think productive problems. But uh, but but worth looking at. So that's kind of one of them. Uh, and the right. other is that that this is the first place that Gamergate shows up, right? Um, and she kind of sets some bounds on the project through Gamergate, uh, which is just a, an organized harassment campaign that was. Uh, specifically targeted toward uh, toward women and and other minorities in games in general, um, that was in defense of some you know uh, nebulous values um, of har- the hardcore gaming crowd. Right, right. The 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 true this uh, ideal of a true gaming public yeah. um, that did not include all of these people who happen to be women or uh, people of color or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically everyone who is not. Uh, what she ends up calling player one uh, in the book. Right. So, so those are kind of like the two, I don't know, um, you know, just big markers for the book uh, that she sets up here and then like pays off again in the conclusion. So we'll talk about it again then. But um, I think it's a, I, I like when someone writes a book that has uh, an introductory chapter or, you know, a preface or something like that, that, that contextualizes the research experience. But yeah, anyway, so I just really like when someone gives a, gives some some context to how they got from point A to point B. 
in the research journey. All right, let's talk about the introduction. So the introduction (laughs) begins uh, with another story, which is probably... uh, something i had no idea about and i love it this this anecdote about the nintendo knitting uh peripheral from yes. the 80s yes <laughs> it's so good so yeah I, I, it's called the nintendo knitting machine and i encourage everyone who is listening to this to just go and look at a picture of it uh because yes. it's super cool um, right if if a 3d printer were a knitting machine that hooked up to your nes that is what this thing is yes Yes. And so, yeah. And so she uses this as kind of like a lever, right? To to say, like, this is a moment where the NES is clearly signaling, like, who the apparatus is for normally and, mm-hmm. like, how to bring in audiences who might not already be brought in. Right. So um, for, for context, right, this is uh, the this this uh, amazingly, this product um, that Nintendo came up with never quite. Uh, you know, came off the ground. Um, but the sort of preliminary copy that she has that she quotes, first of all, the the sort of log line for this uh, peripheral was, now you're knitting with power. Um, and it is, you are looking at the Nintendo knitting machine. It's not a game, not a toy, not something a young girl can outgrow in three or six months or even a year. It's a machine that interacts with the powerful Nintendo Entertainment System to actually knit sweaters, and not just one or two patterns, but a multitude of different and unique designs. Um, so yeah, like the 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 attempt behind this um, was, you know, sort of very bald-facedly to... Uh, like tap into kind of a a female market, right? Uh, because there was this assumption that girls wouldn't want to play games, um, that they would instead want to use their Nintendo to knit. Yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I, yeah, that's like the the implicit argument, right? Is that like, well, we gotta sell this to people somehow to like women or to young girls who might not be interested in playing Zelda or Mario Brothers. What do they like? I bet they like knitting. <laughs> um which i guess i would play with that for sure i think that is super cool um but yeah so that's like kind of the the pitch there and and so she uses that by saying like this is the the assumptions behind this device tell you all the other assumptions about nintendo or that nintendo is making about its audience um and she uses that as kind of like a move into talking about how the industry figures its audience would you say that's fair Yes, yes, no. Um, that is a good way of putting it. Uh, the for literary minded folks in the in the listening audience, the um, thing that I would compare this to would be Wolfgang uh, Easer, uh his uh, in his theory of narratology in terms of fiction, um, the idea of an implied reader. Mm-hmm. That is to say, uh, Easer talks about how there is when you're reading a book, a way of imagining. Um, who is the author imagining reading this book, right? You can differentiate between you yourself and sort of the person that should be reading this, right? The person who agrees at every moment or the person for whom this is tailor-made. And she doesn't uh, name drop this. This is just how I kind of made this connection. Uh, But she takes a kind of similar approach to the marketing materials um, and sort of the the discourses that surround like feminine coded games, and in particular, she starts with this knitting machine, um, which in that uh, excerpt that I read from the copy, you can tell uh, just right out the gate is assuming that 
young girls aren't going to be interested in using the Nintendo to actually play games. Um, and if they did, they are going to outgrow it in, uh, as it says, three or six months or even a year. Yeah. Yeah, that this is because this thing outputs products. I mean, I think there's so much to be said about this object by itself that, yeah. you know, by its uh, the way it's positioned in the book and what she's after. We can't, you know, don't have a lot of access to. But, yeah, there's a lot of assumptions about the audience. But so she she says that this big cluster of assumptions um, is called designed identity. And like this mm-hmm. is the big keyword, I think, of the whole book. I mean, it's in the subtitle. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Um, but yeah, let me let me uh, let me read the quotation here. So she says, "quote I am making a strong distinction between the real lived experiences of women players as opposed to the perception of women players as they are constructed, designed, and managed by the video game industry." I call this designed identity. So it's that constructed, designed, and managed by the industry mm-hmm. thing. That's that. I mean, that's basically the entire book is just pe- pulling out that sentence. Right. Um, so yeah, how do you how do you feel about it? Um, I think so. I think that it's extremely useful. Right. Another way that she describes this, right? She says, uh, "Designed identity," and this is just shortly after the the thing you quoted. Uh, "Designed identity is a hybrid outcome of industry conventions, textual constructs, and audience audience placements in the design and structure of video games." Um, and again, as I said, I sort of connect this to. Uh, old school uh, narratology in thinking about the ways that uh, I, I almost said subject positions and I didn't because I am not sure if player two, as she goes on to name this identity, right? This kind of um, the, the feminine gamer identity. Uh, I am not sure if it's a subject position because it kind of moves between um, as she, she says, it doesn't represent, right, the real lived experiences. It is um, a kind of marketing construction. It's an artifact of that. But at the same time, um, it is a thing that you get interpolated into as a player, or like you are potentially interpolated into it, which calls back to that thing that you mentioned where she said um, in the in the preface where she realized she had become uh, the sort of uh, ideal demographic for these games. Yeah, I mean, I think that that a lot of what you just said there like points at some i think profound benefits of the term of of the notion of designed identity and some weird places in the middle that don't make a lot of sense for me so like interpolation itself right um as as a concept so this comes out of althus sayer's reproduction of capital right Mm -hmm. that's the name of the book Uh, i don't know why i I suddenly felt very unsure about that (laughs) um and and the classic example right is the hailing uh that occurs Mm -hmm. when there's a policeman so so you you walk past um a cop on the street and you you know you make it 100 feet away and behind you you hear the cop yell hey you and you think the cop is yelling at you and this is interpolation. It is, it is the relationship between the subject and power um, and how you can be fully brought into relationship with power um, mm-hmm. in very specific kinds of ways that way. Um, so in some ways, right, the, the designed identity is a hailing. It's a, you know, a, crea- a creation of a container for talking about consumers and then fitting them into that. And we'll talk about that when we talk about the playing with bodies chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, but in some ways, it's like it is real. There are real identities, right? 
Like, right. it's not purely a fiction because she says in the <laughs> the preface that she is that subject position. You know, she's she's I mean, she says it here in the. Uh, oh, maybe I don't have it written down, but but she kind of says like uh, heterosexual, white, uh, cisgendered. All, you know, all of these kind of identity markers. Um, right. That the industry assumes for her, but she also is in that slot. Uh, right, right. She is, she is like, she is in fact all of those things. <laughs> yeah. So it, it is interesting to me that the designed identity is a fiction to some degree, and it's ideological. So later in the book, she calls it a product of ideology. Um, but, it, but also, like, it's, they're real people. <laughs> Right? right, like that—that that are those things. So there's an interesting tension. I think I don't. Or is that a tension? I feel that as a tension. I I think I agree. Um, I also you articulated this in your notes when I looked it over. You you were um sort of articulating it more consistently than I was, but uh, I also had this sense as reading it that I thought it was doing a weird drift and i don't know if that i'm not going to say that it's like a bad thing about the argument but it's an interesting thing about the argument um because it shows as you said there are like there are these kind of affordances uh to this idea of designed identity um but then it also it, it because it slips from a kind of pure convention a pure sort of marketing artifact uh or rather like those those marketing tactics uh sort of attach themselves to actual like identity categories uh that are also of course designed but they're designed kind of on the on the larger level of like you know the society in terms of like how we recognize and understand gender and race um and class and ability um so uh we're we see uh i feel like i'm rambling nope i i don't think you're rambling. Yeah. I, like i think what is interesting yeah. about it like what is both productive and difficult to grapple with is that it designed identity as a concept is a great way of expressing and talking about something that is by its very very definition very messy and we'll talk about right. the mess in just a minute i mean she owns up to it i don't think any mm -hmm. of this is stuff that she is unaware of in the book right um but i think like you know, just kind of demonstrating for readers too, like right here as we're discussing it, that even once we get past the kind of surface level understanding, um, it becomes really weird to talk about this stuff because <laughs> it doesn't quite all fit together. Um, right. And that, and, and that is, that is accounted for by the book. <laughs> um, but yeah, so she calls this, uh, this very particular designed identity for women in the industry. She calls this player two. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to talk about the, <laughs> the, the, the ready player two stuff? Um, okay. So I, <laughs> I, you, you chuckled, which makes me think that you want me to, in some way have to explain ready player one, yeah, which that's, all the, all the uh, folks, yes. all the folks who, uh, <laughs> asked us uh, questions about um, whether or not this book is as good as Ready Player One. <laughs> um, rest assured, uh, it is perhaps even better. <laughs> as a sequel, it follows through in all the ways you hope it would. Um, no, but for real. So uh, obviously the title of this book, Ready Player Two, is um, a, a riff on Ready Player One, which is a novel that came out in like 2009, I think, um, by Ernest Klein and was made into a movie just this last year by Steven Spielberg. Um, that is this just 
I I hate this book. Like I not 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 the book that we're reading, right? I hate Ready Player One, but it's just sort of this like a uh, huge pile of of nerd culture trash and all of this uh, sort of video games will save the world because everyone lives in this dystopian future and they spend all of their time playing an MMO and it turns out that the gamers are the ones the the gamers gamers right the gamers who are immersed um, in. Uh, all of history from like what 1980 through 1995 or something um these are the people who will who will save the future um and of course the main character is this straight white kid um who is in many ways kind of the uh, caricature of of the stereotypical gamer um and so chess coming in as player two um takes up uh this kind of idea of uh you know the the game games were always kind of seen as marketed towards men, and so in this way, player two is is the belated player, right? The feminine player, uh, the player who is not necessarily as um, maybe valued, uh, obviously not the one who is centered. Uh, and she has at one point she says um, because of this, right? Because of this kind of secondary character, um, player two also becomes a kind of space almost of not resistance that's not the exact exact right word more like complication um and in fact like one sentence that she says uh that i saw that you noted was that player two gets to hit the reset button yeah um which i think is a pretty pretty big claim um i'm not sure what i think that's meant to more like a as a figure of speech right um player two because uh because she is not centered right um can come in and uh, sort of inhabit a space that is not really meant for her, right? And uh, in some ways, the designed identity that she's trying to get at, um, at least from the marketing side, is sort of gaming companies' recognition that there is a market here that they haven't tapped. And they're sort of scrambling to catch up with a demographic um, that they have sort of missed. Yes. Yeah, 100%. And then, then, like, the kind of move through... The next little bit of the of the chapter is kind of slowly working through the literature of mm-hmm. of the of the people who have actually dug through this, um, which I think is all good, right? Like she talks about Carly Kasurik's uh, book, mm-hmm. uh, Coin Operated Americans, which mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if you have you read that book. I have not. That no. is a cool book. You should read that. That also okay. might be Minnesota as well. Um, hmm. And then Kashana Gray's book, uh, Gaming at the Edge, which mm-hmm. is about uh, black women on Xbox Live. Right. Um, so so r- really cool stuff. But, but she's looking at the people, and I think Adrian Shaw as well uh, gets a mention yeah. here. Uh, but looking at the the scholars who are invested in, in I, I, I guess... Um, I don't. I was going to say exhuming, but that feels that's wrong. <laughs> Excavating uh, this narrative that's already here, all of these assumptions about player two that are built into the industry's kind of discourse about itself, um, and then bringing that to the surface. So I, I really appreciate that the book is not doing this like, well, this is where game studies came from, and this is the past you know hundred years of game studies, and you know <laughs> we don't have to go back to Homo Ludens as much as I you know think that book is interesting and stuff like that. Right. Like she's very tactical about. Um, looking to the people who are already doing this work uh, and then building on it, which which I appreciate, um, just like from a writerly uh, perspective. Um, 
Yeah, and then she kind of goes through. Sorry, I'm just looking at my notes. She yeah. she kind of goes through feminist game studies throughout the '90s, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, which we'll talk about again in the next chapter too. But then she does a move that I think that you're very invested in, uh, that I'm very interested in too, uh, which is looking to actor network theory. Um, yes, and and assemblage theory, and and I I have some uh, thoughts about the <laughs> illusion between those two things. Um, but yeah, do you want to talk a little bit? So she starts with John Law, uh, and yeah. the and the mess, right? Um, so uh, she begins, and I'm trying to find this in my notes, but she begins with John Law, who uh, I guess does he call himself an actor network theorist or yeah, practitioner? Yes, yeah. When we talk okay. about the originators of actor network theory, John Law is right in there. Okay, yeah. um, I just wanted to make sure because I know like some people end up getting really prickly when you <laughs> when you try to say that they use a method and they don't like it. Yeah, um, I think he does. Yeah. I think he is an avowed user of. Okay, yeah. Nope, you are right. He is. Okay, he's he's all good with this. So John Law is not going to sue us for me saying he is an actor network theorist. Thank you, John Law. Mm-hmm. Uh, so John Law, along with um, Bruno Latour and some other folks, uh, uh, are sort of founding uh, practitioners of this idea called actor network theory um, and sort of m- probably meaningfully, uh, John Law and Latour are both social scientists um, who kind of get meta- meta discursive with their uh with their tool set that is afforded them so um latour very famously starts looking at he uses uh sort of sociological methods to look at um science like contemporary well, historical and contemporary science like laboratory science um and law i think s- mostly looks at sort of social science research um and both of them are very invested in the ways that uh, ideas or concepts, uh, basically the ways that uh, people in the world do things because they think things or believe things, which is a very, very uh, flat way of stating, um, you know, what is it uh, when a scientist is attempting to produce objectivity in an experiment? Like, what is the thing that they are looking for, right? What is objectivity? How does uh, a, a kind of um, sort of subsection of society uh, that we would call like the social sciences or the, you know, uh, physical sciences or anything like that. How, how do these uh, institutions get developed historically? Um, and then how do they come up with these kind of codes of conduct uh, whereby they can do things like, well, we are going to, uh, you know, sort of agree upon these conventions to look for, uh, you know, whatever, uh, like whatever is causing people to get sick, right? The the thing that Latour always comes back to is like Pasteur in France um, and sort of uh, the way that science uh, enters the public life as a, a thing that better living through chemistry as uh, your Reader's Digest reading grandparents might put it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and in the process, uh, one of the things that ends up happening uh, for actor network theorists is that they discover that people are not the only things that uh, have agency or have agency is maybe not the best way to put it. Um, but more like agency is a thing that gets conducted through a network, some sort of actor network, if you will. Um <laughs> So a very, very simple way of saying this would be like, you know, the the traditional view of agency is someone builds a house and, you know, they say, I built this house 
And that is, generally speaking, not a controversial statement. However, the actor network theorist would come in here and they would say, well, actually, uh, you and the hammer built the house. Right, the the tool, the hammer, um, was extremely important, and we tend to overlook uh, these things because we like to focus on uh, people, on humans as actors who uh, sort of contain their agency, um, rather than uh, beings that establish relationships with things like material objects, such as hammers, or what be might be more immaterial objects like certain conventions for building a house, right? That it has four walls, that it has uh, so many windows because of the local uh, fire ordinances or something like that. All of these things come together to produce the house that has been built. Um, And so for uh, John Law, he calls this the mess because as you can kind of tell from the way I'm talking about it, this gets out of hand very, very quickly. Yes. (laughs) Uh, it It is like, it is actors all the way down um, like you, you just throw up, throw open. You're like, how did how did this happen? And you throw up, open the doors, and everything comes rushing in because it turns out everything had a hand in it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the uh, the way that like I, I, you know, I'm not a super big Latour person, despite having read a lot of Latour. Uh, but I mm-hmm. do like the way that it's always kind of discussed as a diagnostic tool, right? Like, right. Like if you want to find out what went wrong with building your house. Actor network theory is maybe one of the better diagnostic tools that you can use. It might take a long time, right? It it, it might, you might, as you're saying, right? Like throwing open the doors means you have to take a lot of things into account. But like your house might be slumping on one side because the concrete didn't dry appropriately because there was a set of bushes that cast a shadow over the corner of the (laughs) the foundation pouring right like and right and that's a thing that like a carpenter is going to figure out but then you have to figure out like actor network theory would push it even further right what happened in the network relationship between the bush the corner of the foundation the concrete pouring uh you know workmen and then the architect in the foreman, like what happened there that everyone screwed that up? Like, <laughs> right. That's what actor network theory is going to theoretically help you do. And then people take that and do a lot of other stuff with it. Right. And so, um, one of the things that, so the way that, uh, chess ends up pulling this in, right. This, this idea of messiness from, uh, John law specifically, uh, is, uh, the idea that the designed identity is itself a mess, right? It is this, uh, weird fusion of, um, uh, she cites Latour on the socio-technical, right? Um, it's this fusion of kind of the designs of the industry, like the games industry, um, the actual lives of players, and then the weird ways that these two things reinforce, uh, and also challenge each other and how both of these two categories of sort of the designed identity um, from the marketing perspective and the actual identity of the players will change in response to one another. Um, co-evolve uh, is another way of looking at it. Yeah. So kind of like a feedback loop of, yes. uh, of, of structure and identity, um, which like, uh, you know, just to give this some context, there's not any room for that in Jesper Yule, right? Like, Right. This is not a thing that figures into any of the big diagrams or like the way that narrative comes out or anything like that. There's no, you know, there's discussion about like, why would players do things that are uh, maybe against their best interest or challenging to them or things like that. But, you know, Half Real doesn't give us a theory of 
uh, the way that Tetris is designed in relationship to the controller, in relationship to its audience, right, or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. This, this, this is uh, in comparison to that. Chess's theory is all about actual conditions of creation and play by people. Right. No, there's a real um, one of one of my favorite things about this book actually is kind of the uh, the. I, I guess I would call it like a, almost a ground level um, view of a lot of things. Like she's talking about very, very large questions within within games and within kind of the industry. And nevertheless, right, most of this book is kind of like her interviewing devs yeah. at companies that make these games or doing like deep reads on like, you know, some some like puzzle game where you rescue baby seals, right? That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, no, it's 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 really interesting in that way. Yeah, so that's kind of like the big theoretical paradigm uh, of the whole thing. I do want to get my plug in about assemblages, though. Um, oh yeah, no, no, okay, you got to do your assemblage. Yeah, thing. I just like you I, let me do psychoanalysis last last episode. So I'll I'll save like a big a big opinion on on uh, assemblages, but. Um, but just to say in this book, like there's a slippage that happens and that, that many people do. I don't think that Shira Chess is in any way uh, alone in this, especially within games. Um, mm-hmm. But T.L. Taylor wrote a piece several years ago called The Assemblage of Play, in which uh, she kind of looked at all the different ways that assemblages could kind of function or surface within games. Um, and so she's really she's literally looking at like assemblage, like the, the art movement of, you know, putting things together. Mm-hmm. Um, all the way to like the technical explanation or the philosophical explanation of uh, assemblages via uh, Deleuze and Guattari, the kind of big French philosophers um, mm-hmm. of you know the post nineteen sixty eight movement, uh, which is like the weird translation of agencement, which is like uh, putting <laughs> things together and the act of assembling and the object itself, right? So there's like a whole thing. My dissertation is like heavily heavily involved, uh, and my master's <laughs> thesis in it, but. Um, like I, I am of like the strong opinion that like assemblages have a technical definition to them. And like, that's a useful thing for game studies. Um, Mm -hmm. and that they are not the same thing as actor network theory and that they have their own kind of philosophical lingua, you know, lineage and, and development, uh, particularly through Manuel Delanda. Um, Mm -hmm. so that's my plug for like, mm, like we need a more specific theory of assemblages. Uh, (laughs) like not everything is an assemblage and, and the explanatory capacity of the assemblage is very good, but it doesn't necessarily, uh, uh, work quite well with actor network theory. I think you got to choose one or the other. That's my, that's my like, I care about the, the very fine definitions I've decided on. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) All right. Well, I'm not going to fight you on that. Um, I'm not sure if I agree or disagree. Actually, no, I think I actually probably agree. But I'm not going to fight you. Uh, I we're not going to turn to blood sport this early in our run. No, no. Um, and and but but yeah yeah. So uh, I mean I think it's I think it's great that like assemblages show up here. Um, mm-hmm. And I really I, I think it's really great that actor network theory is like the backbone of of what is here. Uh, if only because it means that there's a strong commitment in the book to recognizing that there are like inhuman things afoot right <laughs> right that, that it's not just like people creating objects that determine who plays them that those that those objects are like kind of self-sustaining and self-creating right uh, right right yeah um which it gets well we're a little getting a little bit ahead of ourselves right but like uh gets illustrated really uh 
nicely later on when she starts talking about how these game these so spoilers right spoilers for this book we're going to talk about uh but later on when she starts talking about um specific uh games uh and doing deep reads on them um they're all kind of casual quote-unquote casual games like mobile games um and it is sort of startling how many of these kind of invent their own genres Mm -hmm. like there are many genres like you get a you get a you get a game that like sets a type um and then suddenly like that is its own genre and you have diner dash and then you have like three million different versions of diner dash um yeah, and so. like forks off of that. Yeah, that's like, right. that's in a couple chapters, but I think we'll get there yeah. fairly quickly. So let, let's talk, yeah. uh, I guess, about chapter one now. Um, so chapter one is is just kind of like setting out what how designed identity works and like what is the the full I don't know like coverage area of player two as a designed <laughs> identity, right? Um, right. And, and as she said before, or, or kind of, uh, I read the quote before, but she's very explicit in this chapter, that designed identity is made of three major factors. Uh, the first is industry conventions, the second is mm-hmm. textual constructs, and the third is audience placements. Which, yeah, which, which I, makes a lot of sense to me. And she points particularly to Sherry Grainer Ray's book, uh, Gender Inclusive Game Design. Have, have you ever mm-hmm. read this book before? I have I have not. Um, I was like extremely sh- so like I was extremely shocked to discover this because it is the as 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 Chess points out right it is the uh, last sort of book focused on like game design for female audiences. Uh, like it's the most recent one and it was written or published at least in two thousand four. <laughs> yes. So uh, sadly, uh, part of the reason we're recording this a little bit later than than uh, maybe we should have uh, in the sense of like we should have recorded this two weeks ago, uh, <laughs> is that uh, I had to move. Uh, but when I read this book the first time, um, I don't I don't know, a while back, like six months ago or something, I bought Gender Inclusive Game Design. Uh, I have a oh. copy of it. And I think that, uh, for whatever reason, I think that Chess is a little... I, I mean, I guess she does say this, but she's a little bit um, soft on the book. I, I mean, I think it is a deeply essentializing book. Like, it makes some very strong assumptions and claims about, like, quote, like, how women work Mm -hmm. um, that that I don't think, I don't think they shook out in 2004, and I don't think they shake out now. Um, Yeah. But but it is a kind of surprise. I actually looked for it, but I have, like, a thousand boxes that have not been unpacked (laughs) yet, uh, because I literally moved two days ago, uh, three days ago. Um, so it's hard to do, but, uh, I, I encourage people to look it up. I think it's like clearly an important thing. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it treats women as a monolith. Yeah, no. And I mean, and that's, yeah, that's, that is a, that is a thing that chess acknowledges. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. right. The, the idea of, um, well, and actually Ray points this out, right. Uh, is the idea of, uh, as she puts it, females as genre, mm-hmm. um, so like a game for a woman is uh like something like Barbie Horse Adventure, right? Uh that there is a specific genre of games that women like to play um rather than women being uh sort of, you know, a, a diverse group of folks who have all sorts of interests and inclinations and who are going to respond differently to different sorts of games and different types of gameplay. Yes. Um and also like 
that I mean, what I think is interesting about it too is that, like, as far as you know, because Chess talked to several people who are working mm-hmm. designers, and the methods in this book for designing games for women have just been wholly adopted by that industry. Yeah, like kind of uncritically, it seemed to me, right? Yeah, no, it it did seem that way, and there's also uh. Even like even despite that, and this is the other weird thing. Um, some of the developers she she talks to are reticent to say that they design games for women. Yeah. Um, right. Some of them are not quite as uh, like as comfortable with that. Um, and I think that also speaks to a kind of uh, anxiety. Um, I mean, within those companies maybe, but also within the industry of uh, sort of self marginalizing. By saying like, oh well, we make games for women, even though we're following kind of um, this pattern established in two thousand four that says, uh, <clears throat> here are basically the things that women want out of a game. Yeah, Richard Gere uh, creating it was Richard Gere and what women want was that him? Oh no, that was that was Mel Gibson. Oh. But because he's really bad, we can we can just <laughs> erase him and say it was Richard. It was Gere. Richard Gere. Uh, uh, if only he'd been a, a game designer. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so out of all these interviews of people who, are, you know, who, uh, of the things that she quotes from them, they kind of like talk in a wide, wide ranging way about mm-hmm. the games that they make. Uh, although I really did like the anecdote that one of the companies had a like a big picture of a middle aged white woman dressed like an insurance agent on the wall. Right. So, so they can quote right. always remember who their player is. Yeah. Which is like, well, that is equal parts amusing and kind of depressing. Um, well, you want to talk about these categories really briefly? Right. <clears throat> so um, then uh, Jess, basically based on uh, uh, the interviews that she's done with um, designers for uh, games that seem to fit uh, this mold of, of game that she is looking at, uh sort of divines kind of various characteristics that seem to unite them. Um, and she splits them up into various categories, uh, thematic attributes, um, gameplay attributes, visual attributes, character attributes, um, and the excluded attributes. Uh, so thematic attributes are things like what what is what are the themes of this game, right? What is uh, it kind of about? What is it? What is the aesthetic? That sort of thing. Um, and of course, uh, as we all know, uh, all women really love uh, mature storylines with human relationships at the center. Um, that is what they want. They don't want uh, Master Chief uh, having to blow up the halos or stop the halos from blowing things up. They want uh, human relationships. Um, and uh, there's also a kind of tendency toward uh you know, like gothic settings, um, sort of mysteries, kind of suspense thrillers, and like sort of notably, of course, right? Uh, uh, a lot of the things that show up here are things that we would associate with media, um, other types of media made for women. So um, like romance novels, uh, kind of uh, the, I don't know how to de- precisely describe this, but kind of like that very specific genre of like mystery thriller novel that uh, like airport fiction, um kind of things yeah uh, i think just like the contemporary thriller right the contemporary thriller yeah that's a good way of putting it um uh so that's sort of the thematic uh the the, the thematic material that these games tend to cluster around when um, when i was reading these thematic attributes yeah i thought 
but especially because we have the thing of older women prefer gothic settings to supernatural or a classic mystery. <laughs> and I just thought, maybe Michael and I are 40-year-old white women. <laughs> I like I all mean, of those. It would not be the biggest surprise in my life, I guess, if, if it turned out that, like, I am a game being played by, like, that's the pullback. That's the end of the, the movie. It turns out that I am the simulation uh, and... What I can't remember. I think the the insurance lady had a name. It was like Joan or Jean or something. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll pull it. So right. Jean is playing me. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, I mean, there are all these things that women supposedly are just gaga for. Um, I think also you and I also think a lot of these things are good. Uh, there are also um, specific gameplay attributes that these games. Um, will tend to cluster around or emphasize at the expense of other things. Uh, and these are usually uh, sort of some component of social interaction, either real or the game itself is in some way about social interactions. Um, that is to say, either the game is social media connected or it's a, a, a kind of um, like Kim Kardashian Hollywood where you're in this kind of like weird simulated world and you're navigating a, a, a social ladder. Um there aren't as many sort of like big risk moments. Uh, you know, if you think of moments in um, like a console game or a PC game where uh, you have to be really quick on the draw and hit the buttons in just the right order, except then you, there's no Dark Souls, right? No. no. <laughs> there is there is no there is no Dark Souls for women, um, apparently. Um, uh, I so using this, uh, I actually yeah. taught the way I te- taught the, this chapter. Uh, the last time I taught it is I read all these attributes out and we talked about them all. And I made the case that, in fact, Dark Souls does do a lot of these things. Oh, OK. And so my argument was like, well, the, you well know, it's definitely gothic and supernatural and mysterious. Yeah, A lot of the gameplay stuff like like it is twitchy and complicated, but you have infinite tries like you're not punished mm. for trying over and over again. Like all these different things. And we like really got you know down into the nitty gritty reading of the game. And my claim was like. Does that mean that Dark Souls is a part of this, you know, kind of apparatus? What does it mean that if when the most quote unquote hardcore of games uh, fits right. into a what appears to be kind of like a casual game paradigm fairly easily? Um, right. And students revolted. <laughs> they were not oh my on gosh. board. Like at oh, all. Oh, but that that works so well though, because like her next thing is like visual attributes. So like strong visual sense, essentially. Um, usually like lush and colorful, which you know we could go back and forth on like how much how how colorful Dark Souls is, but it's still like a very visually striking game. Um, you know, character attributes. So uh, like relatable avatars and NPCs, customizable things. Um. <laughs> things aren't overly like the 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 avatar the character avatar is not overly sexualized oh. uh and in fact i think the only thing that really uh would exclude dark souls potentially is her last one which is um excluded attributes which is things like violent content um or spaces that might incur harassment uh or quote-unquote skill-based games yep however as you're pointing out um while playing Dark Souls, what we think of as well is probably skill-based. Um, that is not a prerequisite because you have infinite tries. So you can just, I don't know, you can slam your face on that wall until it crumbles. Yeah, so that's kind of like my, and, and I'm I'm currently writing this piece. Uh, it's It, oh, it will come out at some point. But yeah, that's my general claim is that like uh, Dark Souls helps point to how design identity works. 
Um, Because it really is, uh, you know, the or at least part of the exclusionary capacity of Dark Souls is the the community around it and the marketing around it. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, And so, like, I'm I'm using designed identity. I want in this in this piece I'm writing, I want to use designed identity as a lever for talking about, like, how that network uh, how I mean, I'm using the word assemblage, but how the right. how the assemblage <laughs> of Dark Souls function is kind of like a game design paradigm. Um, so so, right, so right. yeah, I'm interested in like digging around in this. And you know, I I'll say this: like a lot of the people that I think uh, have the most interesting things to say about Dark Souls and and are not interested in uh, being involved in like the toxicity of Dark Souls are women. Like I know a lot of women who play hmm. these games. Uh, a lot of them are yeah. on our Discord. So. Yeah, no, I mean, I can, yeah. I am not a huge Dark Souls person, so I don't tend to, like, chum around with, with the Dark Souls folks. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, I think I think especially in terms of, like, a lot of the aesthetic categories that uh, Chess outlines that I, you know, also very much like, I think, like, Dark Souls really does nail those, right? That idea of a, uh, of a sort of nuanced or, um, you know, sort of intriguing story right in the way that you have to puzzle out exactly what's going on in dark souls that sort of mysterious element and then that kind of the tone and the atmosphere the kind of visuals of it uh whereas the you know playing is just i mean in some ways right the game is as all games are right an exercise in the game training you to play it so of course you're going to eventually develop some sort of skill with it yes uh absolutely but yeah so those are kind of like the big the 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 big attributes that she works backward uh, from all these interviews that she did. Um, oh, and Jennifer is the name of the kind of fictional character that she is. Oh, right. Okay, together. Jennifer. All right, Jennifer is the person who's my puppet master. All right, mm-hmm. we got that. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, so like within this paradigm then that she sets up of like of game design assumption. Um, she then like each chapter that comes after this is like a different way that that impacts or, or is vectorized into people uh, <laughs> via games, right? Like how do these games right. shoot through uh, the subject position of women who play them? Right. Um, yeah. Right. So and just sort of give us a, a kind of roadmap for where we're going. Um, and we'll cover these in order, right? The, the ways that she ends up, uh, the, the vectors that she ends up covering um, begin with time. Uh, following that, she talks about sort of emotion and affect. Uh, and uh, then she talks about uh, consumption, right, in the, uh, like, market sense of, like, buying things. And uh, then bodies, the ways that these games uh, treat all of these uh, particular aspects. Yeah, and I think that these... these uh... I think we'll probably hit each of these kind of briefly, um, mm-hmm. if only because like, uh, and, and I, this is going. This sounds like a critique, but it's not a critique. Like these are all singular readings, basically, of like how time functions in these games, how emotions and affect function in these games, right? Like they're very thin slivers of argument uh, that I think are really well researched and like the background is really good on it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if they. Like, the big paradigm does a lot of work mm-hmm. for me. I, I don't yeah. know how much, like, you know, the 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 casual game con- conception of time. I don't know how much that gives me other than a better understanding of how these games work. Right. No, and I agree. Um, like, the, the structure of this book is very strange to me, and it's good to hear you 
also say that like you feel like it feels a little odd to you and not in a bad way right but in like just kind of a different way um because one of the things that you tend to expect from academic books and we got this to some extent with yule um is that like the rising action of like you know i'm going to set something out i'm going to build and build and build and build and build and instead what happens um with this book is we get chess has uh, a kind of she front loads a lot of stuff right theoretically um in terms of her apparatus um and then the book kind of becomes almost the, the word that I thought of was meditative mm-hmm. uh, because she kind of establishes a collection of games. Um, we shall say texts, perhaps. Uh, so she has this kind of collection of texts that uh, almost always, like all of them get mentioned in every chapter. Um, but like, they are approached uh, either like in different amounts, right? Some of them are in more chapters than others. Um, sometimes it's just very passing, uh, but uh, she will approach them always from the the topic that is guiding that chapter, right? So um, she talks about um, she tar- she starts out talking about, for instance, time um, and the ways that a lot of these games. Uh, are designed to fill, as she put, uh, they are not uh, designed to be play- played uh, as leisure for the sake of leisure, which is to say they're not designed to be played in the way that, like, you come home and you're going to just binge several hours of Destiny or whatever game you're currently playing. Um, rather, these games are designed to fill snippets of time. Um, so something like on your phone, like the Diner Dash is kind of one of the central uh the text, one of the central games that she talks about here, uh, sort of discussing how uh, that game is designed in such a way that you can play a game of Diner Dash on your bus ride, um, or like while waiting in the doctor's office or the dentist's office or what have you. Um, and so that time aspect uh, becomes the primary way in which she engages with uh, the the texts there however diner dash comes back in later chapters particularly late, later on in the bodies chapter uh to sort of talk about um aesthetics and i think it also maybe shows up in the consumption chapter as well um so it ends up feeling meditative in the sense that like there is just this body of material and you kind of go with chess as she circles around it in certain ways and then circles around it in another way and circles around it in another way. And then she kind of has her big concluding chapter or not really chapter, but sort of concluding moment, um, I guess you would say. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, I think I, I really like the way you've laid it out because that's exactly what's happening. It's a bundle of texts in like how each is involved in the theme of each chapter. Um this is a very singular kind of reading. So, so yeah, I mean, um, I, weirdly enough, I think you've summarized the time chapter, playing with time, uh, in that way, right? <laughs> right, right, yes. No, exactly. Like, these, yeah. these games are just sort of uniformly designed such that um, they are not meant to be played as, le- as she says, leisure for the sake of leisure, right? Mm-hmm. This is not like, I am going to have a big gaming day where I play nothing but Candy Crush, <laughs> right that's yes. that's not how these games are meant like that's not how these games are meant to be consumed yeah um so and the of course reason for this is that women's leisure time is often understood to be at a premium in fact uh women's leisure time is uh supposed to be even more like it's even though it's le- like sort of free time right they're still supposed to be productive they're supposed to be i don't know cleaning around the house or thinking about what they're going to be buying for groceries that week or remembering when they have to pick up the kids that kind of thing mm-hmm. um 
and she so in that way again we have kind of the 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 reality of how women live um and the way that it interfaces uh sometimes intuitively and sometimes counterintuitively with the way that these games get designed and marketed yes um and in the second chapter not the third chapter i guess playing with emotions kind of works the same way um it it is very although rather invested in like how do how do do does time get parsed out for women? It's about how is uh, emotional labor figured into like the daily life of women. Um, right. And so uh, child rearing is, of course, uh, a huge part of that. Uh, there's a, a, a slight citation to Leopoldina Fortunati, uh, whose work I've been reading a whole lot recently. She's an um, Italian uh Italian Marxist uh, who, who wrote about uh, emotional labor in the 90s mm-hmm. and 2000s. Uh, yeah. Really cool, really cool work. Um, but then she kind of talks in that chapter, that chapter is broadly about how these video games consistently mimic that relationship. So you, mm-hmm. you have Diner Dash, and Diner Dash is uh, about Flo, this character who's like running around and, and having to manage the, the diner. And but she's also has to manage these relationships with all of her different uh, patrons, and additionally, th- more and more games that are set in like the the dinerverse or whatever, right? The, the flowniverse uh, are really like an intensification of of emotional labor that women have to perform as players on the characters in that world. Um, and she, I think, she really digs down into that in an interesting way. Right. No, and I thought that was really interesting. Um, that that idea that these games in some way uh, systematize or like codify emotional labor in, in like well they gamify it right yeah um, but like emotional labor conceptually is is one of its hallmarks is that it is it escapes kind of normal normal logics of capitalist production and value assignment um, right because and that's oh, that's part of the whole deal right because because uh, the emotional labor that a woman needs to perform. Um, cannot be measured it is therefore worthless under capitalism therefore it goes sort of unremarked and sort of unappreciated uh and what these games do is they kind of pull that out and they make it into a game mechanic where you can be like i am succeeding at this emotional labor yes yeah yeah uh i I wrote this quote down uh the player is forced into a role that might emulate the labor he or she might practice at work or home. The continuity mm-hmm. of this has the potential to be both rewarding and limiting. <laughs> right. No, this that's I think <clears throat> close to that is when she makes this really like bonkers point that I absolutely love about hidden object games. Um and how like that like hidden object games in case like you're not familiar with these are um a kind of uh, adventure game where uh very often you have a sort of screen uh that is showing a scene uh and you poke at things and you like you tap on them and you click them and you interact with them and uh, eventually you will do everything in the correct order um, and you will solve the screen and the plot will progress. And very often these are uh, uh, mystery games um, and they're about sort of investigating environments, moving things around, looking for clues. Um, and she points out how basically uh, these are these are simulations of cleaning your house. Yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> um, uh, and it's just... 
she also says because in these games they're often from a first person's perspective um and there's no sort of embodiment to the player character uh i love this quote in the hidden object game the most hidden thing is the player herself (laughs) um which i just i love because it's like you know she wrote that and she was like oh man i love that i get to write this sentence uh and it's also true right because it's this bizarre because it becomes this bizarre fantasy of cleaning your house while not having a body yes yes right and it'll never Uh, get messed up again too right 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 a kind of um idealized version of like cleaning without sort of the physical labor without kind of uh the fact that it's all all entropy and it's all going to collapse again eventually This is your Game Study Study Buddy Cameron here, giving you the little mid-episode bumper break thing. Just letting you know that you can uh, tweet us at twitter.com slash rangetouch. You can send us an email at gamestudystudybuddies at gmail.com. If you want to support the show, you can check out the link below. Uh, Feel free to come into our Discord as well. All kinds of cool stuff that you can do to remain involved in the show. And if you uh, really like it, we would really appreciate it if you rated it on whatever platform that you uh, are listening to it on. And also, if you would just tell other people about it. It. We work entirely by word of mouth, and we would really appreciate it if you uh, enjoyed the show to let other people know that you enjoyed the show. That's the kind of thing that we live for. We love it when you like the thing we make. Uh, anyway, I'm going to let you get back to the show now. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so the, the next chapter, I mean, I like that all of these chapters are kind of different slices of the same object or different arguments with the, uh, the same mm-hmm. objects. Um, and chapter four is about consumption, and we've talked about it uh, a few times here, but it in particular, like its main object is Kim Kardashian Hollywood, mm-hmm. uh, and about how it's just a game about purchasing things <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. investing time into, uh, into a game just to purchase things right and that it's like for for a quote-unquote casual game it is just hella time intensive yes yeah like incredibly and and is this where invest no invest in express kind of comes up a little bit earlier um that we didn't talk about it but kim Mm -hmm. kardashian hollywood is yet another game in the like zynga invest slash express model um, and it's kind of like a game design paradigm, I guess. And she uh, mm-hmm. talks about it a little bit. She gives kind of a couple pages, but the general idea and like, you know, uh, if you keep in your head, uh, you know, Farmville, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you invest time and effort, um, you know, so just clicking on stuff or, um, uh, you know, managing the farm operations or whatever, managing your character in the case of Kim Kardashian Hollywood, and you express by uh, using all that investment time, that time you've invested into making your character look good or making your farm look exactly the way you want it to. And that's kind of like this infinite loop of, uh, mm-hmm. I want the better grain silo or I want like a cooler <laughs> wig. And so 
um, I need to invest more time so I can express and and so on and so forth. And I mean, this is everywhere now. This is Fortnite. Yeah. I mean, right. Yeah. Like Fortnite in its very, <clears throat> the very, uh, in, in the Fortnite community, there is a uh, term for people who don't do this and they're called no skins. Uh, which means they have not they've not spent money on buying the battle pass or buying a particular skin for twenty bucks. Um and they're like plebeians. You know what I mean? <laughs> they're the yeah. lowest of the low. Um so yeah, this this is games now. Like there's right. every it's everywhere. Um yeah. Right. And yeah, she talks about like she, of course in this in this chapter she talks about in app purchases. And as I when I was first reading this book, um this was like right up this was earlier this year like right when the loot box thing was really getting heated mm. um and it was you know me thinking like well you know the it's come for the gamers right <laughs> like these these things uh, in many ways right we can see how uh, casual games um have been a kind of test bed for various mechanics or um ideas uh that are now finding their way into kind of like triple a quote-unquote mainstream gaming Yes. Yeah. A hundred percent. So, so yeah, I mean, in this chapter, she particularly kind of like goes back to Marx and she kind of talks about production and consumption and productive consumption to kind of talk about Mm -hmm. the process of generating and, and consuming, but that's that exact point. Uh, so I wrote down a little thing about Chikun. Um, Mm -hmm. are you, have you ever read any of Chikun's work? (laughs) I have well, I I have now. I hadn't until this morning when you sent me when you sent me this link to uh, the Malatino piece oh, on yeah. that. So yeah. I am a, consider me an expert now. Mm, uh, uh, but no, you can talk about it because this was like super fascinating. Yeah. So Chikun is like a collective, like an intellectuals collective in um, in France, and they were working in the '90s in the very early 2000s, and they wrote this pamphlet book it's published by similar text in the u.s and it was translated by uh i cannot uh, kimberly i can't remember her last name uh right now but anyway tra- written in the 90s translated in the early 2000s um and it's called preliminary materials for the theory of a young girl um and there are a lot of problems with this text. This text is uh, deeply complicated. I don't. I this is not a full endorsement of it, uh, mm-hmm. it but it's a provocative argument. But the thing that I linked you and the thing that I have here is this piece by Hilary Malatino uh, in uh, Rhizome issue twenty in Rhizomes issue twenty two from twenty eleven. And the name of the piece is "The Becoming Woman of the Young Girls: Revisiting Riot Girl, Rethinking Girlhood," and. Uh, uh, so Malachino wrote this piece several years ago, and this is, I think, like the best uh, summation of what Chikun are up to. But the, this is a long preamble to say the reason that this is so interesting to me is that uh, in for them, the young girl is the subject position under which capitalism is driving everyone toward. Yeah. Um, and, and so this is from the Malachino piece. Uh, the, mm-hmm. This is a quote. The motivation for terming this concept, young girl, stems from a recognition that femininity and youth have, historically speaking, been commoditized first. Chikun argues that in the process of becoming little by little real, capital's domination has found its best supports in, quote, the marginalized elements of traditional societies themselves, women and youths first, than homosexuals and immigrants. So they kind of, so Chikun kind of argue that there are 
moments of uh, or, or subject positions of vulnerability and outsideness of capital that have mm-hmm. to be seized upon first in order to make production happen. Um, right. Like these are easily commoditizable or the forces of capital are so overwhelming that these subject positions are eaten first, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, I, th- I think, right? I mean, this is the Fortnite yep. and loot box stuff that we were just talking about. The, the, the woman gamer was that, right? Or right. is that? Right, right. No, no. And I think um, the, th- the thing that, you know, very much uh, came to mind for me when, when reading uh, that piece, right, was the fact that it, it checks out in terms of English colonialism, right? Uh, the, the sort of discourse of um, sort of colonialism uh, in early modern England focuses very, very much on the ability to produce like sort of trinkets and baubles and things that women like to buy. Um, but then also um, the complement to sort of like the the consuming. So like the men, of course, have to become these kind of canny merchants who can procure these things and sell them to the women who need them and make a profit. And um, sometimes, right, be, like they have to do this for the women's own good because the women don't know how to run their own lives unless they have a man in front of them telling them what they can buy. Um, meanwhile, right over in uh, in North America, and I guess all of the Americas really, uh, you have this weird complementary discourse about native populations where they don't understand. Basically, right, women and uh, natives are the same. Uh, women at home and natives across the sea are the same because they don't understand the market, and we can then use the market to kind of like like they can become the grist for the market mill, uh, as it sort of as capital kind of consolidates uh, power, um, and capitalism as a system kind of comes into play uh, with uh, the beginnings of um, you know European colonialism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and that's what I find so fascinating, right? That that the moment that that like truly transnational capital gets going, right? Which is, you know, I don't know, six, the mid 1600s, something like that. Yeah. Uh, something like that's when we're really kicking into high gear. Yeah. Up until now, like the, the logic that is used in mobile games is the eternal logic, like period, like <laughs> yeah. no matter what. Right. Um, and then like the, 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 the big part of it to me, right. Is that then once it is proved to work, it can be exploded into all parts of the marketplace, mm-hmm. um, which is like why I find so so. I think that market or the argument is very interesting. I think that she doesn't push this very hard um, because she she really says that you know that like the assumptions about these games are built into women and shopping and how women's consumption works. But there right. are real, like there are weird moments where this has been transcended already, uh, particularly yeah. targeting to men. Did you see this mm-hmm. link that I put in for this game called Summer Sale? Oh, oh! I didn't realize that was a game. This, I thought you were. I thought you just linked to something about the Steam Summer Sale. No, there's a game on Steam called Summer Sale where you buy it. Oh it, God! It's a dollar, and it is a simulation of the Summer Sale. Oh man! Yeah. Okay. And they change it per right. per season. Uh, <laughs> and literally, you're just like clicking on stuff that says like purchase game for forty percent off, and it's of all these like fake games that exist, and they go into your fake Steam library, and it's like a UI simulation. 
Wow. Which, right, okay. it's like... That's I'm the, looking at this now. That's the jump, right? That's the... Um, and it has 865 reviews on Steam. Like, this is not wow. a game that no one has looked at. Right. Um, no, and I think, I think part of that is... Uh, I think it's kind of like the way academic publishing works, right? The the game the this book just came out like right before all of these things really started to leak into uh like mainstream gaming or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Uh player one's gaming. Yes. Yeah. I mean that is what's so fascinating to me, right, is that and this isn't really signaled in the book, but but maybe because this isn't you know a concern uh, for her. Yeah. But it's that the the designed identity of player two is always racing ahead of player one, to some degree, mm. right? It, it is always right. figured in relationship to player one, one step in front of it. So that's consumption, right? right. <laughs> playing with consumption, it, it is. Uh, um, so yeah, so the last chapter is playing with bodies. Yeah. Uh. And this is, uh, <laughs> you're going to have a lot to say here because this is, the, this is when she talks about Foucault. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, my, my uh, and bro. like the second, right. The second she talked about docile bodies, I've read, I've read your master's thesis. So I was like, oh man, Cameron's going to have something to say here. Uh, but anyway, to back up just a little bit, obviously this chapter is about bodies. Um, and, uh, there are kind of two points to the argument in this chapter, uh, one is that some kinds of bodies are preferable to others in in the the kind of player two gaming space, um, which we would expect, right? It's not like uh, this is this is a new thing for how how women are treated. Um, but also, and this is sort of more interesting, uh, is that gaming produces the bodies that it needs, mm-hmm. uh, and this is what brings her into the docile body argument. And I'll let you kind of cover that mm-hmm. uh, before, just very uh, briefly. I just need to mention this, like object that she begins the oh, chapter crap, reading, yes where i literally oh, my, i literally my in my notes i just wrote this shit is absolutely bonkers <laughs> like that yeah. that is in capital letters it is a game uh that is a quote-unquote smart device for encouraging for gamifying kegels for women to strength the strengthen their pelvic floor um <sighs> and i i strongly encourage it's called the skia S-K-E-A, and I strongly encourage people to go, like, look at the materials around it, if only because, like, it is it is unbelievable the, uh, the just horrifying sexism involved in, in, in <laughs> making the thing. Um, but yeah, it's just, so the, the specifics of the argument, I don't think uh, we have to walk through, but please go look up that object, because it's Oh, wow, that is, weird. oh, gosh, you, that is a weird, okay. <laughs> Yeah, the I mean the picture that's in the book is even even. But anyway, based on Michael's yeah. response, everyone go check that out. Um, yeah. It's not disturbing; it's just bad. Yeah, it's just like wow. Okay, that's definitely a product that you made. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so she oh, like run like Temple Run for the vagina <laughs> is the marketing copy. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. Oh God, uh, they don't have Temple. They don't have Temple Run for a dick yet, do they? Yeah. <laughs> We, we've, Not yet. We've got to get on. That's that. that's how that's how player two is always a step ahead of player one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, capitalism is bad, Michael. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, okay, but 
Yeah, so she uses that as a, as a way of talking about, like, technology and the way that the body is figured, and so she kind of steps into the argument that gets made in, in Discipline and Punish, uh, Foucault's book, a kind of big, uh, big landmark book, um, that where the argument is basically that uh, during the disciplinary moment of the 17th, 18th century, um, we go from strict control, disciplinary control of our bodies, so you know, um, uh, torturing people, doing things mm-hmm. like a sovereign power, basically. Uh, so the king can come and behead you, things like that into a, uh, more, uh, I, well, he calls it panoptic power, but the idea of self-discipline. Right. So, so that right, I, right. uh, I won't commit a murder or I won't steal from someone because I know that the police could catch me um, and that anyone could be looking at me at any moment. And so I self-discipline myself into certain kinds of behaviors. Um, and right. that's not just in relationship to crime. It's things like, um, do I think seditious thoughts? Uh, do I write down my seditious thoughts, uh, even if no one would ever see them? Um, so that kind right. of thing. Um, and then that gets, of course, extrapolated across all kinds of things about your body. So if I um, am closeted, right, would I ever be able to think of it in those terms and would I ever be able to express myself? Or would the normalizing violent tendencies of society make me unable to truly deal with that or even surface it? That kind of thing. Um, so it is right. a, a mode of bringing massive populations into uh, normalized uh, contexts. Um, so, so all of that, that, that's, that is a a very bad summation of a very large argument, but, um, that's the general gist. Um, and so, so yeah, so, so basically what she says is there, there, that enters into relationship with games because games are begin performing this kind of normalizing gesture toward the body. Mm -hmm. Um, they basically gamify us into, uh, body shapes. The the example that she uses is in Kim, Kim Kardashian. Kim Kardashian Hollywood. I can't believe it took this long for me not to be able to say it. But uh, <laughs> uh, that in that game you can do all kinds of stuff with your body, but you can't change your body shape. Like you were normalized mm-hmm. into a very particular thing. Um, and so yeah, I've written quite a bit about th- this kind of argument before. I don't know if I understand this argument the same way that that chess does. Um, like, I understand this argument to be, because uh, when he's talking about, when Foucault writes about the 16th century, in particular 16th and 17th, he talks about how military disciplinary training manuals at the time uh, basically dissolved what we think of as, like, the essential human. That mm-hmm. uh, they begin to, to realize that you can discipline people um, and get them into, say, training regimes or drilling regimes or target practice and things like that. And you can turn someone of basically any ability or any capability and morph them into a soldier. Like, you can you can take any population and change it. Um, mm-hmm. And so, for me, like, I read the, the argument of docile bodies as one about structure and technology. That there's no human. Like, there's zero human <laughs> beyond structure. We are just masses of flesh that can be right. morphed in, you know kind of like a jello mold into anything <laughs> um which is I, I think you know in the way that i read this uh is that it's a much bigger problem uh than than uh, a specific kind of game asking you to do something um it is a structural right. problem about like mediation itself right yeah no i think for for um 
<clears throat> I think for chess, uh, it is it becomes more. And I'm not saying she's sort of like reducing it or anything, but it come it becomes more of a piece with a uh, kind of the culture studies way of looking at like here is here is how like women are basically taught to hate their own bodies yeah. right yeah like uh you know like why does cooking mama never get to eat the food that she makes yeah <laughs> which is an abs- like it's an absurd question uh in one sense but also it's like yeah hey well, like why why can't cooking mama eat yeah like why is cooking mama just constantly making food for other people why is she constantly kind of exerting herself but never consuming what's going on with that hey yeah, yeah, and she sort of marshals this whole thing into basically into the argument that you just kind of laid out there, right? So that the digital body and the non-digital body kind of get flattened out, that that it's kind of this echo chamber of bad bodily representations uh, uh, for women. Although I do think this kind of toward the end of the chapter is interesting. So there's this, this quote I wrote down where she says, there's a certain kind of liberating appeal mm. to the mutability of the characters in Kim Kardashian Hollywood. It seems to be post-race and post-sexuality in this way. Um, so like to some degree, I think that there is something, um, comforting to the fact of knowing there is no essential human and that we're jello molds, <laughs> right? Right. Of discipline. Because then that means that like, there's, you know, it's the Assassin's Creed, like, you know, everything is permitted. Nothing is true. <laughs> um, kind of moment, uh, which, you know, like Foucault was very, uh, uh, influential in, in bringing back Nietzsche and Nietzsche, uh, uh in Thus Spake Zarathustra has a play on that line. So, there, there's there's real stuff uh, there. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's an interesting like evocation of the Foucault argument. I wish there was a little bit more. Um, I, I wish that th- I wish that this argument was elevated to the level of uh, the use of actor network theory, I guess, is my mm-hmm. is my hope for it. Right now, it's actually it's very strange to have Foucault just kind of like show up suddenly here um, in the way that he does. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I I am not necessarily I like I like Foucault. Um, I don't have quite the engagement with him that you do. Uh, but I agree that it was it's a it's a very odd kind of moment where suddenly um I feel like something gets sort of added to the theoretical apparatus at this point. Yeah. Um, because then we start talking about uh sort of the fact that even even what we think of as kind of like the biological body is not in an in and of itself kind of an essential thing right bodies are not just mounds of flesh that we have forever right even if we get like push them into like cultural jello molds like our our bodies are changing and growing right they are not themselves like stable sites yeah of yeah. of uh meaning or what have you yeah i mean they're they're the the house with the bad foundation <laughs> Right, right. Uh, like, and they're imbricated in that system, in, in that big actor network system, in the same way. It seems like that the, adding the Foucault and adding Foucault is like a major plank adds a mm-hmm. lot of like theoretical unification problems that maybe, mm-hmm. like, okay, like I recognize my problems as a scholar that I like the <laughs> idea of like a unified theory that is uh, ontologically stable and like consistent, and you know, I have I have bad tendencies. Uh, on on that side and not everyone has those tendencies but on the other end i like a good like ontological explanation that like unifies (laughs) body and spirit up down the line right right um oh and i guess like one other just like slight point to make and i think this is an interesting thing to consider one of the reasons she suggests um that bodies in uh female bodies in these games uh tend to get presented in kind of these weird um 
almost denatured ways is a direct kind of response to the ways that women's bodies are sexualized in player one's games. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the sort of, I mean, of course we could talk until, I don't know, the next time we record a podcast about, about that. Um, But it's an interesting thing to keep in mind because it also ties back to uh, the original kind of principles um, uh, or attributes of these games uh, in way, like, because one of them was that the, uh, the female character or the female characters in general, or like the player character, if it is like a woman character um, is not overtly sexualized in the way that you would expect. um, Maybe not so much now, now, uh, but like in the way that you would think of like Lara Croft in in the late '90s or early 2000s, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, and in the background of all of this too. I mean, th- this is maybe like a like a wiggly cultural studies point too. But mm-hmm. like, I think a lot about basically a lot of mutual friends that uh, that you and I share. They love these types of games in general, uh, but they mm-hmm. love playing incredibly sexualized women. Um, yeah, and like that—that that is a, a moment of consumptive habit that just doesn't really show up here in any way. And I know that that's not what this book is about uh, to some right, degree. Right, but like, but that is a yeah, lever but, of importance, I think. Right, right, and there, yeah, and I think that is true. And I think that's a really good point. Right, that there are women who are going to play these games who are going to be like, no, I want, like, I want to be hot. Right. Like I want to be sexy. I want or like I want my character to be sexy. I want to make like I want a world full of nothing but sexy characters. Like, let's go for it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I I, I mean, I think that fully taking that into account, a makes this book much larger and b like maybe puts an unfair burden on the book of like looking mm-hmm. at design ideology and um, consumption habits. But, but that, I mean, that's something that by this point in the book, by chapter five and the conclusion I'm really feeling um, yeah. is like, if these are the ideological sum- assumptions that are being made behind design, then do those assumptions land appropriately um, in anyone other than Shira Chess, who we have already established is the, the core audience to some degree uh, for the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, but there are other people who've written that book too. So, <laughs> um, all right. Well, so, so those are the general chapters. Then we have the conclusion. Yeah. Um, and I'm just going to read this quotation uh, from the conclusion. I, I really love this book. I love the, the method, the method. I think this is a book that quite literally gives game studies a new method. That's a big deal to me. There's a reason I wanted <laughs> to read this. I like the readings, but I am kind of uh, boggled by the conclusion. Um, so I'm just going to read this quotation. And I know that you wrote some stuff in your notes about the conclusion as well. Um, yeah. So, quote, the playful is political. The name of this conclusion, by the way, is the playful is political. Sorry. Quote, the playful is political because the playful is about the bending of boundaries in new ways, the remapping of identity, and the rethinking of traditional roles. In these ways, play can act as a catalyst for feminisms. What, what do you think about that, Michael? Um, <clears throat> I, I am not quite sure what is happening. I would say Um, not because I think it's necessarily a bad point, but because um, and I think this is actually probably a partly a function of uh, kind of like how academic books work. Right. Is like the the conclusion is kind of where you do your grandstanding, where you kind of make these claims that uh, 
possibly lead into a future book um but like you're you're trying to kind of end on on something of a, a cumulative note um and so i am not really sure what play as a catalyst for feminisms would mean in practice yeah i'm, I'm not quite sure either i mean um the way that i read that most of this book uh and this is kind of back to my point from two seconds ago it's about the conditions of production under which a player is brought, right? So designed mm-hmm. identity is like a little framework for you as a person to get shoved into. It's the jello mold um, right. to some degree. And I don't know how much room for action, period, positive or negative, is really in Diner Dash. Right. Like, it seems like it's just a, a thing you consume and a thing that like gets hammered into your life in some way. But I don't know if there's like a catalytic relationship with anything, positive or negative, here. I agree with you um, that I'm not sure what is catalytic uh, in in the kind of readings that she's done. Or rather, I can see how, in, in kind of the broad strokes of her argument, I see kind of how change happens, right, in, in this model, where... Um, there is a kind of assumption about like what women gamers are going to want um, and that game gets made and like because of the sheer volume of production um, on these platforms something catches on right and sort of the market shifts or changes um and that's just like that's just market shift right that's just market changing though right that's not really like a catalyst for a new feminism and i'm not sure uh what uh exactly is going to happen with well the other thing the the quote that i pulled out um from this was uh she's talking about microtransactions um she talks about how they are a quote more comfortable economic entry points for a diverse audience to engage with play um that is to say this kind of like uh way that uh games with microtransactions uh present themselves uh as somehow friendlier because people understand the idea of like paying for something and getting something in return um, that you can like start up a game and there's all this gaming stuff going on, but microtransactions uh, can be a way to make you feel for the game or feel involved with the game when you're not sort of normally or nominally a gamer. Um, and I think that's true. And I think that actually speaks to uh, kind of the way we're seeing um, that those those techniques and those ideas filter back out into the uh, like gaming AAA mainstream sphere. Um, but also, like, I'm not sure if that's like a catalyst for a new feminism. I, I just think that's, you know, the market, you know, opening up new vectors and like pursuing them. Yeah, just doing market stuff. Right. Um, and it it I understand uh you know, that there are, like, good things about that, but I don't think it is, like, unequivocally a good thing, especially because really all that's happening is these companies are looking for more ways to extract value. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that's the... In some ways, like, you know, kind of flipping the book backwards in some ways, like, this is a book about ways that markets have extracted value out of people and out of people's Mm -hmm. play habits. And it is difficult... Other... uh, I, well, maybe, maybe, maybe I'll I'll say this. Like the way I see out of that or altering that is if this book gets picked up in the same way that the uh, gender inclusive game design book does. Like that's that's mm. a way of of thinking about that. But this is an academic book, right? It's not right. a book that's offering a design paradigm for people to adopt um, 
you know, I mean, because kind of like the dream of having an impact on the game design world is to write a book that is uncritically adopted, right? Mm-hmm. There's just like whole hog uh, brought in. Um, but I just don't see this book functioning in that way. Um, and I don't see the market changing very much. So, so yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, I mean, maybe that could, this could just be a very unfair burden to put on this book. Yeah. Right. Like it's not going to change the world. It's an academic book. It's a really accessible and well-written and and smart academic book. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's a, you know, it's an analytic tool. Right. Um, and it may be right. The, the other way of sort of spinning this idea of play is if we sort of pull in maybe like some of the things that Mackenzie work talks about um, in like gamer theory and the idea of um, consciousness raising is not exactly the right term, but it might as well be uh, the, the way that uh, trying to by by having produced this book, by having sort of pointed out this weird relationship between uh, or like having pointed out that there's this thing called designed identity mm-hmm. Uh, and it is weirdly ambivalent, right? It is split at its core between uh, sort of lived experience of of the player and sort of um, you know textual and market convention. Um, you know, finding like being able to sort of like become conscious of that split uh, and that ambivalence within uh, the role that the world would the finding the split in the jello mold and <laughs> and slowly leaking out into something uh, bigger and far stranger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's it. Um, I think that's like the best hope for the thing. And worst comes to worst, we have like a lot better language to talk about. I mean, I think you know. I I think as the well, maybe I'll say this that that you know Xbox last year during E three their opening like weird little cinematic thing was a woman playing Xbox, right? Like. They have yeah. begun. They have begun to figure uh, player two into traditional AAA gaming, and we're going to see a lot of the things that are in this book reconfigured when they hit that that marketplace, which is a different kind of marketplace. And it mm-hmm. is already, as we've talked about several times during the the podcast so far, it is already transforming that place. And so, in some to, to some degree, right? I think that this this book gives us a way of jumping forward with talking about that, mm. right? Like we are right. we can hit the ground running a lot faster than waiting 5 years after Fortnite, you know, takes over <laughs> the gaming logic world. And we can immediately right now start saying things like, "Oh yeah, like this is just casual games." And we know how they work in production and consumption, so we can maybe figure out ways of talking about it better uh just having better language for the way we're figured into that system uh so we are going to have our uh first piece of listener mail um i guess it's mail technically it's mail i don't know really it's a tweet Mm -hmm. uh if you want to ever tweet at us uh you can tweet at us at range touch yeah uh that will also tweet at several other things Mm -hmm. (laughs) um but eventually things will get to us so um uh sloan from twitter uh writes in uh and I've chosen this particular question uh, because they are specifically asking about uh, this book. Um, we have a couple of other questions that are really great uh, that we will hopefully get to in future episodes, but just because we're covering chess here, Sloan asks, uh, um, she is focused, that is chess, is focusing on the imagined identity of player two and how specific games will be created for this particular character. 
but how do you see this impacting the greater push for gender diversity in more mainstream games? Are women characters in games taking on some of the constructions Chess describes in uh, these more masculine, like player one games, um, and are they presented as valuable in as the player one characters? What do you think, Michael? Well, <clears throat> I think I am on the one hand a very poor person to ask this question because I'm really bad at keeping up with like what's happening in games at the present moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I like just got a switch um, and I'm I'm only playing Zelda, uh, but um, I think uh, in some ways uh, the what we've discussed about uh, the ways that these uh, these these casual game um elements are kind of percolating back out into into the larger gaming culture um is in some ways probably going to have that effect or like some sort of effect on the ways that uh, gender representation focuses in in more major titles um if only because uh customizability is so much a part of that and like customizability can be monetized like from here to Sunday, right? Uh, if you can um, give uh, players like sort of different bodies or like different accessories for those bodies, uh, on the one hand, right, that is one way in which this kind of uh, representational uh, little meter will tick over uh, in some way. Um, on the other hand, <clears throat> in terms of like, narratives or like games like characters who are sort of like cemented right characters who who are like representations in the sense that like there was a writer sitting down and creating them um i'm not so sure i'm not so sure what uh chess uh what the things that chess is talking about um are so much more on the level of mechanic and design uh, that I'm not sure how they will impact sort of the the issue of like representation more broadly construed. Does that make sense? That does make sense. Yeah, I, I also agree. I don't know, like narrative within this book, narrative is always just a conceit. Like, I don't even know. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if narrative shows up in this book. Right. It's more right. like plot point um, right. or framework, something like that might be. More appropriate, yeah. Like I, I think that exactly what you're talking about uh, related to uh, customization is super important. If only because, like, you know, I think there's an argument to be made with this book, or or, or uh, a disagreement to be made with this book that like these things are uh, first showing up in in mm -hmm. casual games. So, for example, um, you know, you could get custom icons for call of duty games for for quite a long time i, I forget like custom patches basically mm -hmm. um and custom gun skins have been a huge thing and custom gun skins are like a massive marketplace uh for csgo but also like in call of duty it was about getting like the the weed leaf gun skin right <laughs> um right and that's not where battlefield 5 right which battlefield 5 is going to have a massive amount of customization compared to previous games and it's not about putting weed leaves all over everything it's about like getting your particular flak jacket or your haircut things like that right like right like when when push came to shove in the customization world is the customization options of Kim Kardashian Hollywood that showed up in Battlefield Five. It is not the customization options of Black Ops Two or whatever. Um, right. So I think that that's like, like quote unquote feminization 
is happening or, or the designed identity of player two is showing up in these games under the guise of player one. Um, yes. But it's all the same stuff. So I, I think that's an interesting thing. Uh, there, there's like a counter narrative that is happening that has been destroyed <laughs> yes. by the, the, the market power of player two to some degree. Right. Which is kind of, and kind of I mean, and we'll, we'll see how that shakes out, right? Yes. Like that might have effects that we just really aren't, you know, forecasting at this point. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So thank you so much for the question, Sloan. Yeah, thank you. And we'll, we'll try to get to other questions. Uh, this is just a longer episode. This was a little bit longer than I think yeah. we had planned for it to be. Um, so, so Michael, where, where can people find you? <clears throat> people can find me on twitter.com with uh, the at sign Warren is dead. Um, and I also have a website that is very rarely updated, but that's correlatedcontents.com, And that'll have like links to all of my games and some of my writing and stuff. Yes. And you can find me at C Kunzelman, C K U N Z E L M A N. Um, and I have a whole set of options uh, for you to, to find out more information about the show and about us. You can uh, join the Discord. The Discord is in the link or in the description of this podcast. Uh, a lot of people who listen to the show have joined the Discord. You can come talk about all kinds of stuff uh, with us. You can go to rangetouch.com uh, to find out about this show and other shows that, that are uh, in the Range Touch network. You can uh, follow at Ranged Touch uh, on Twitter. Uh, and you can support us on Patreon. Um, Five dollars a month gets you an additional podcast, not with Michael, uh, but with myself and <laughs> uh, and Danny, the other kind of half of Range Touch, and uh, some other uh, cool things as well. But if you like this show and if you like what we're doing, uh, and if you want us to keep doing it, then the best way to um, make that happen is to follow us on social media, tweet people about it, let people know that you like the show, and of course to give us money that's that's a big part of it <laughs> um and uh if you have any questions or comments or any additional stuff um uh, michael has uh graciously created a <laughs> uh, email account yeah. for us yeah no so if you have uh any any questions for this podcast in particular um you can always of course like at the range touch twitter or like uh either me or cameron um but who knows if we'll actually see it. Uh, but if you really want to get a hold of us, you can also just send us an email. Our email address is gamesstudiesstudybuddies at gmail.com. It's very easy to remember. It's just the name of the podcast because, amazingly, it hadn't been taken already. Wow. It's a real shocker. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I was I was fearing for the worst when I hit the enter button, but it let me. Yeah. So. Uh, so yeah, you can hit us through there. Uh, yeah, thanks so much, everyone, for listening to the show, and we will be back in probably a month. Um, I mean, not probably. We'll be back in a month <laughs> with uh, <laughs> another book. We don't know yeah, what we're doing yet. Book. We have a we, to be decided. Yeah, TBD. We'll let you know in probably a couple weeks. Uh, we have a big long list that we're whittling down right now. Uh, good goodbye. Bye. <laughs>